But to this matter of Abraham, I'm concerned on one side that people might believe that Adam Lee has a point that there's a kind of ethic that's preferable uh, apart from the Bible. So that's one ditch, I would say. The other one is that um, people would read this story and not appreciate the gravity of it and the implications of the, the fearful ideas and concepts that are presented there where God, the God we claim to worship, once told a man, I want you to go and slaughter your own child like an animal and burn his body up, dismember him and burn him on an altar. It's, it's ghoulish, mm-hmm. and, and we, we need to, to encounter the full weight of that, and we need to wrestle with it. If we don't have a good answer, if we just ignore it or we say, well, you know, there's, there's some stuff in the Old Testament, but those people were backward, and, I, you know, we've evolved. We start to do that. We've already conceded the argument. You know, we've already said, yeah, this, this probably isn't true, but I, I need it to get through the day. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast. We are seeking to recover faith in people. In people, no. (laughs) We've given up on that. We want people to recover their faith. We do. And we believe that will happen as we recover the faith. The faith. The gospel that God gave us. And so we're trying to explore the gospel in this podcast, and we're in a series called According to Scripture, where we're going back and looking at Old Testament stories and characters and looking to, uh, to see uh, the gospel in those stories or the ways they paved the way for the gospel and fill out our understanding of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And today, the topic of t- today, the title for today is Moriah. Moriah. Oh, and by the way, I'm Kent and this is Nathan. Nathan, yeah, in case you didn't know, you're new. You're new here. We talked about in the previous episode how Abraham went from Abram to Abraham. Today we're going to talk about the sacrifice of Isaac. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll start with our highlights. After fulfilling his promise to supernaturally provide an heir for Abraham, God appears to him, commanding him to sacrifice his son. This text tells the reader in advance that it's a test, but leaves a lot of questions unresolved. Yeah, buddy. God's shocking demand of Abraham is met by Abraham's equally shocking compliance. Abraham just went and did it. Uh, as Abraham bears down with the knife to slaughter his son, a new character enters the story. The angel or messenger of the Lord prevents the patriarch from following through on the sacrifice. Mm. In the demand for the ultimate sacrifice and the provision of a substitute offering, God's nature is juxtaposed, there's a good word, with his character as Yahweh the Lord. Okay, so we have God's nature and we have God's character, and these two are distinct. Right. The story of Abram's sacrifice of Isaac presents the divine dilemma between God as holy and Yahweh as loving. There's God's nature. God's character. God is holy, Yahweh is loving, but leaves it unresolved. Even though God's nature and character appear in sequence here, the promise is made that one day on the mountain of the Lord, it would be provided. Hence the name Moriah, which means what? On the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Yeah, or what is Moriah? It will be provided. It will be provided. The Lord provides. 
The Lord provides. Uh, yeah. So we need to talk about Adam. Okay, so yeah, this is a troubling story, right? The sacrifice yeah. of Isaac, troubling mm-hmm. story. Yeah. Maybe something that for a long time uh, people just accepted as, um, oh, as you know, religious dogma. Like yeah. this happened, and mm-hmm. we believe it, right? And we follow it, mm-hmm. and we incorporate it into our faith. But now it's more acceptable to critique it, yeah, and question it, yeah. And so you're citing this author, Adam Lee. Right, He's raising these important questions. Yeah, well, and and he uses the story of Abraham. Adam Lee's contention is that most Christians today that the Christian ethic doesn't exist, um, but that we the Christian Christ, Western Christians have co opted a, a liberal humanist ethic, and um, we just kind of covered it with a Christian veneer. So um, the and and he's not wrong. You and I have talked before about the work of Christian Smith and um, Melissa or Melinda Lindquist that talked about uh, how the church has been colonized by a, an alternate belief system called moralistic therapeutic deism. So um, Smith and Lindquist interviewed 3,000 religious youth and discovered that their value system didn't come from the Bible, um, but really came from the culture and so uh, values like, um, say, religious tolerance and equality and all of that that comes, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say are not rela- are unrelated to the biblical worldview, but largely have been articulated by a more enlightenment, rationalistic ideal <clears throat> so that what we consider right and wrong it doesn't have its direct referent in Scripture so much as it does in our cultural sensibilities. And uh, to demonstrate that distinction, Adam Lee, uh, this humanist atheist, concocted uh, what he calls the Abraham test. And so he goes into our scriptures and says, hey, you know, if you were confronted with the same test, what would you do? And here's how he articulates that test. He says, Do you believe that violence in God's name is wrong, or do you merely believe that he hasn't commanded, hasn't personally told you to do violence? If God appeared to you and spoke to you, commanding you to commit a violent act, to murder a child, say, how would you respond? If your answer is that you'd never commit an act of unprovoked violence against another human being, no matter who told you to do it, then congratulations. You are a better person than the character of Abraham and possess a more developed moral sense than the author of that story. And you ought to be applauded for that. If that it's that kind of rational, humanistic morality that's led humanity out of the dark ages of bloodshed and tribal warfare fossilized in the pages of the Bible. So what would you do with that? You know, what, what are we to do with it? I, uh, seems like a good argument. It is a good argument. And I think he's right. You know, that uh, we look, we would look during the, especially the time when ISIS, um, controlled, swaths of the Levant in, um, you know, Palestine and Syria, um, Iraq. And um, there was a, we, we would look at that and we would say, oh, well, that's, 
all of that violence and stuff in God's name is inherently wrong. And uh, we critique a lot of, um, say, modern or not modernistic, but, you know, Muslims in our day who would, who would be more jihadi. And we say, well, that's essentially wrong. We see that that's wrong and we would never want to be in a society that was related to that in any way. Um, and yet, you know, they could say, well, you know, you say you believe the Old Testament is inspired and very similar uh, depictions often are uh, found there. And so, do you know, the question we have to ask, and I, and I think it's just always such a given that nobody even bothers to consider what is the Christian ethic? What is the distinctly Christian ethic? What does it mean? What does Christianity bring to the conversation in human society? And what makes a thing right or wrong, right? Uh, and, uh, and so <clears throat> while Adam Lee assumes that um, if you wouldn't kill a person randomly uh, hearing from a God, that that makes you a good person, um, on what does he base that assessment, I guess I would ask? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do you assess that, that that makes you a, a better person? Um, what, what, uh, on what does he base that set of values? What makes that right or wrong? What gives him the, um, you know, the basis to say, well, what ISIS did was bad or, you know, that kind of a claim is a bad thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I, and I'm sure he would have some sort of an answer and argument, but ultimately, and, um, I was reading another guy, Greg Epstein, who wrote, um, he's, he's kind of one of the happy or friendly humanists, uh, atheists, and um, he wrote a book called Good Without God. And in his book, he just openly admits, hey, there is no basis for right and wrong. You know, this is a subjective thing, and we just have to ask, you know, what do we want? We're basically going to take a collective vote and say, what what do we want to declare right and wrong? And then we're going to try to live that out. And that's fine, uh, I suppose, and I hope that works. The problem is, is when the rubber meets the road and things get really hard and we have to choose between doing right and protecting ourselves or our family. That's going to go out the window. Our tribe. Yeah. Um, And it's so easy for those who have power um, to marginalize others, to justify their actions, to claim the greater good and still perpetrate all kinds of evil, maybe to do it um, in a way that is more clandestine and hidden because there is this kind of popular vote about right and wrong, but because people don't really have something down in their bones, you know, that, that there's something that trumps my existence. There's something that allows me to operate against my own uh, self-preservation or self-preservation because it's a higher thing. And if an ethic doesn't have that kind of uh, weight to it does it matter at all yeah we can get to all that but our my contention would be and i assume yours as well Kent, is that there is an ethic in the bible that transcends not only the common understanding of what the bible tells us to do you know but it also transcends modern sensibilities of right and wrong uh, I, I would say to adam lee that not causing harm to an innocent isn't virtue that's just a starting place you know you're not no one's going to come and congratulate you for not hurting an innocent person right that, that that's not an actual 
virtuous act, but that there are that the humanist system it requires governmental and policy structures to allow people who are generally really not good people, people who just want to get through the day and not do anything that uh, may stress their own empathy or whatever. Um, those aren't actually what I would you would call good people. Let, let's say, let's survey all humanists and say, what percentage of your income do you give to benevolent causes? Yeah, I think there's been surveys, stu- <laughs> studies that show very, very, very minimal. Right. Below 2%, something right. like that. And so if, um, if we live in a society that is, um, is not forcibly extracting money and redistributing it from people for social services, but rather counting on the goodwill of the citizenry to alleviate the suffering in the society, will, will that function? Will that happen if it's entirely humanist? I would contend that it will not. Um, I, I personally have not met any atheist humanists who've had an active concern for um, those who are marginalized, maybe those who have, you know, harmed themselves and made bad choices. You don't see a ton of humanist societies waiting outside of a prison to uh, help ex-cons get reacclimated and to eliminate recidivism. You just don't see a redemptive side to this liberal mentality. You know, uh, what you see is a, an outcry to force other people to do what's right. But that outcry can easily become violent in and of itself, as we've seen in the communist revolutions and other things, where we say, well, you've, you've not participated in an egalitarian society, and so we're going to make you suffer. You know, we'll quote-unquote re-educate you in some way. And then you have all kinds of other evil. So that's an aside. Um, But to this matter of Abraham, I'm concerned on one side that people might believe that Adam Lee has a point that there is a kind of ethic that's preferable uh, apart from the Bible. So that's one ditch, I would say. The other one is that um, people would read this story and not appreciate the gravity of it and the implications of the the fearful ideas and concepts that are presented there where God, the God we claim to worship, once told a man, I want you to go and slaughter your own child like an animal and burn his body up, dismember him and burn him on an altar. It's it's ghoulish. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we need to, to encounter the full weight of that, and we need to wrestle with it. If we don't have a good answer, if we just ignore it or we say, well, you know, there's, there's some stuff in the Old Testament, but those people were backward, and, I, you know, we've evolved. We start to do that. We've already conceded the argument. You know, we've already said, yeah, this, this probably isn't true, but I, I need it to get through the day. I think we've tacitly done that. If we apologize for the violence in the Old Testament, it sounds to me, and I'm open to be corrected, but it sounds to me like we're saying, yeah, that you're right, that that is inherently wrong, and the Bible got it wrong, and immorality is taught in the Bible, 
And, um, and that to me is a bridge too far. You know, I, I've said that, that the gospel is the revelation, but the Bible is the revelation of the revelation. And if it's, if it's, you know, it may have some details wrong. It's an instrument to point to Christ. There may be some things about it. God is, I don't think, is a control freak. He allowed some human influence. Obviously, you can read various authors in the Bible. You can kind of recognize their diction and who they are. This isn't God um, giving dictation like we wish he would. Okay. Um, and so there, I think there are things, reports of numbers of people who were marched into battle or who were killed in battle. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, exaggerations to of, make a point. Right. Yeah. All of these details, they can be wrong. poetic That's license, okay. things like that. Right. But if, if the Bible at some point misrepresents God as bloodthirsty when he's not, you know, or wrathful when he's always benign, um, if it misrepresents God in some way, in some way that is prevalent and prolonged and pronounced. A major you know, theme. Uh, yeah. And if it does that, then it is flawed and we need to throw it away. Stop. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let's quit this a la carte approach. It doesn't do us any good. It's not going to convince the unbelievers. They're just going to be like, yeah, we told you so. They're going to see us as pathetic, right? Mm-hmm. As we're just clinging to the vestiges, remnants of this, a few positive um, glimmers here and there. If that's all we can do with the Bible, then just give up, man, stop. Because I don't think anything's being accomplished. I think we are merely conceding the argument, but not having the backbone or the guts to admit that we've conceded the argument. If we can't stare these stories full in the face and realize not only are they true in the sense that they're representing God accurately, but that there is a message there, a lesson that is transcendent, that's beyond what we might expect, that is more, you know, uh, erudite than, than we can imagine. Not only is it not barbaric, but it was always beyond us. If we don't find that in Scripture, and I think we won't find it if we insist on redacting it. Mm-hmm. But if we can stare it full in the face and in faith say, you know, I'm going to hold, I'm going to remain in the tension that's pulling me, this this sense that I'm reading a story that is very troubling and I'm not going to minimize that, mm-hmm. that I'm going to accept the full weight of, of the implications of the story. But I'm going to retain what I think I know of God that is somebody who is ultimately loving, that has acted in my life in some way, has answered my prayers. You know, And this is what troubles me when people give up their faith is that they, they have to go back and edit their own life. And they have to look at those places where God touched them, answered their prayers, where he's answered other people's prayers, 2,000 years of history of, of documented miracles, and, and just discount all of that. Mm-hmm. And say that that's that's illegitimate. That obviously is a deception. Why does it have to be, right? What it, it seems to me dishonest if we take all that it seems valid and legitimate in the Christian experience, both in our own lives and throughout history, and we just say that was all stuff and nonsense, in order to take hold of some naturalistic, materialistic worldview, or to somehow look away from what we think is barbaric in in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's just as dishonest that we relinquish legitimate data points in order to take a hold of another set of data points. And the mm-hmm. problem I think that we find in, when we have this dilemma, people who've left their faith are people who are black and white thinkers. 
they were highly fundamentalistic Christians because black and white thinking, their version of Christianity was very black and white. Maybe they were trained in fundamentalism to be black and white thinkers. Yeah. Or, you know, and some people are wired, I think, more to be black and white thinkers. And so if, if the earth isn't 6,000 years old, and if, uh, you know, we weren't somehow magically brought into existence, but maybe we came in through a process. And, and if that becomes established truth and someone recognizes that and they say, well, obviously the Bible can't be true, you know, rather than to hold intention, some propositions, we were created, but the universe is 13.9 billion years old, you know, and we hold those intention. What we'll find, I think, uh, at least my, at what's been my experience, is that there is a third um, presence, uh, an entity, if you will, or, or something, a device that is our paradigm, this thing that that we use to hold information, okay? It's our model of the world. Now, if our paradigm is too small, then we can't fit competing data points in this narrow paradigm. But can we stretch our model? You know, can we begin to think in in more nuanced and broader terms to accommodate? And I would argue that we need to do that because there are legitimate points being made on both sides. And if we can't do that, then we have to discount legitimate information on one side or the other. So some people will just swing hard right and they'll go all answers in Genesis. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's a scientific conspiracy and all this. Right. That just isn't gel with the truth of reality. OK, mm-hmm. that's not the evidence not doesn't support it, the scientific no. evidence. Yeah. No, it's foolish to do. Uh, and, and it makes us naive. We don't argue well, uh, you know, that it um, it maligns the gospel. It creates a entry threshold that's that's uncrossable to a thinking person. Right. If you say to somebody, hey, you, you know, you need to be a Christian and, and to do that, you're going to have to relinquish basically reason. Mm-hmm. Well, most people aren't going to do that, nor should they. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other side, I think people say, hey, it's a material universe. The only thing we can prove exists empirically is this, this and this. And so um, let's discount all the other. And so we'll just go with empiricism. We had, I had a guy on TikTok. He was like, can you prove to me, you know, the existence of anything spiritual? I was like, can I do it? Can I show you a double blind quantitative study that uh, demonstrates that? No, obviously. Uh, but does that, does that mean that that's the only way to recognize something is, is valid or that it exists? No, obviously. Um, and so, but for somebody who's very black and white thinker, they're going to they're gonna have to say, well, you know, I'm going to have to discount everything that can't be demonstrated in a peer-reviewed, double-blind, quantitative study. If, it can't, if we can't do that, if, if it's not empirically provable through the scientific method, it doesn't exist. That's a choice that you've made as a faith proposition, and you've chosen to exclude a whole array of data mm-hmm. that, to me, is compelling. Um, and so my, my concern and my counsel to people is we have to take it all and, and wrestle with it. Just give ourselves time to wrestle with it. And so getting back to this, this story, I don't want us to fall off on one side and say, well, you know, it's in the Bible, but I, I don't really think that's an accurate depiction of God. And those people were ancient and that's how they understood things. And we need to contextualize it. That's an error. That's going to that's gonna cause us failure. And it's lazy and it's cheap. 
Okay. On the other side to say, well, of course it was brutal. And it, because the Bible is just a product of a, of a tribal narrative, it's just a human origin, obviously, you know, to look fully into the brutality of the story and say, yes, it's brutal. And that's why you should reject the Bible. That's another ditch. What I want to, what I want us to do today is I want us to look full in the face and say, yes, this story is brutal. It is challenging. It is hard to read. Okay. But it reveals a higher truth. It reveals something surprising about God. And it affirms scripture as a book that, while I would not say is infallible in every detail, is transcendent in its ultimate message. And that's the introduction to wow. our I, uh, <laughs> our, st- yeah, our story much, for today. Too much. Sorry. Get off <laughs> let's, on a tangent. Hey, that's a good introduction. I, I like it. Yeah. Let's dive into the details. Let's read yeah. the story. Yeah. So what happens? I've been talking a lot. Why don't you Genesis 22. Yeah. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. There's the There's the story showing us. The writer understands there's tension here. Oh, yeah. Like, we see tension, the writer sees tension. Right, yeah. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Yeah. So, you notice God's tone. What do you think about God's tone here? We'll go through some of these. Um, direct. Yeah. To the point. Yeah. <laughs> and actually uh, emphasizing what what a problem this will be, this this yeah. ought to be for Abraham, mm-hmm. describing the son as the only son that he loves. Yeah. Named Isaac. Right. Yeah, I, I think sometimes we look back on these stories and we think, well, people obviously didn't love their kids as much back then. You know, um, I, I would say that probably they love them more than we do, but uh, in, in terms of practically mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. everything dependent on that child and who that child became and, and everything, you know, for us, we want to make our own way. Kids are kind of this, uh, ancillary hobby. Sometimes I think for people, uh, for them, kids were everything. Mm-hmm. And so this, this requirement and God being this, you know, I, I think he's somewhat, he doesn't, ex, he doesn't explain himself. Um, he doesn't, there's no preamble, <laughs> you know, he just gets right to it. You know, sometimes you, you, you have a hard conversation, something you want to broach with somebody, something big you want to ask. What do you do? You know, do you just blurt it right out or do you do you hit preamble a little bit? Do you butter the person up? Right. You know, and God's yeah. like, no, you know, he's make just like, disclaimers. You know, no, you're going to misunderstand me. I want to tell you up front. I don't mean this and I right. don't mean that. So before I say it, I want you to know what I don't mean. Right. Right. Yeah. And so. This uh, we're told at the outset, so we have some dramatic irony here that we're told that it's a test, but that doesn't seem to, from my perspective, it doesn't make it much better. I mean, it's it's nice at on the back end, but uh, for God to make this demand and to uh, allow this kind of psychological torture uh, on Abraham only as a just some demonstration, it it seems more cruel in some ways, and so um, it's it's a challenging demand and um, we need to kind of feel the weight of it and here's abraham's response early the next morning abraham got up and loaded his donkey he took with him two of his servants and his son isaac when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering he set out for the place god had told him about on the third day 
Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Yeah. So Abraham and, you know, in, in any dramatization of this story, Abraham wrestles with this. And I'm, I'm sure he did, but the story doesn't record that, doesn't report it. And um, the Bible is, is, very, is a very intentional and careful book. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing there I think that's wasted and there's nothing left out that's not left out intentionally mm-hmm. um, and so you have this abrupt just as you have this abrupt demand you you have an equally abrupt response mm-hmm. where he gets up first thing in the morning um, and begins these preparations it's not like he drags his heels he doesn't wait a few weeks he doesn't try to bring Sarah on board he just gets up and begins to make preparations um, and he's very deliberate, I think, in his carrying out of this command. There's not, he's not leaving any margin for, for failure here. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah. And then he tells his servants, you know, we, we stay here. We would go up and we will come back to you. Uh, the author of uh, Hebrews makes a point of this to say that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. I don't know that that's the case. It does seem to me. Uh, from last time we talked about that the big lesson that Abraham needed to learn is, uh, is anything too hard for the Lord? Having learned that, I, I wonder, you mm-hmm. know, uh, he, Abraham goes to the trouble to, to say some things he doesn't even have to say to the servants. Mm-hmm. And the writer makes sure to record them. Right. Yeah. We will come back to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we know Abraham had a, a strained relationship with the truth. Uh, at times and and said things that uh, weren't necessarily completely accurate for convenience sake but he really didn't need to say anything these were his uh, subordinates and he could just say stay here but he seems to articulate um, his expectation Um, and then we will see you know as Abraham and and Isaac begin to move toward this uh, carrying out this command this demand from God that um, you know, Abraham continues to wrestle with this, um, or, um, I don't know, he does not struggling. You can see he doesn't seem to be struggling with it, but there's, uh, the story kind of maintains that tension for us at least. Um, so Genesis 22 verses six through eight, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Yeah. So you see a similar statement here. Uh, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Just like in the previous section, the boy and I will worship and we will return to you. It may be hinting that Abraham trusts that God will provide a solution of some sort. Yeah. Or maybe he's just managing his son, you know, and managing his servants. Right. Yeah. 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 Because he does, you know, he, he does tend to, to bend the truth when it, it suits him as uh-huh. he's two times has lied about Sarah being his sister. And now um, he's he's coming up with these concocting these convenient responses to get, you know, mm-hmm. compliance. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe that's all that's happening. 
but I, and I think in this interaction, this exchange, you can see a real tenderness here, you know, um, and I, I don't know about you, but it does kind of cut me to the core as you, as they're having this conversation, you know, and, and there's this kind of endearment as yes, my son, you know, um, my son, this possessive, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's a, it's a very dear kind of response to Isaac. And you see in Isaac uh, a trust and um, a love in that this whole time he's not really asked any questions. Now it's just the two of them. This whole time he's assumed his dad knows what he's doing. And even as his dad gives him this kind of weird answer and maybe it, you know, maybe Isaac could just trust that that would happen. Um, it seems to be enough. And so there's, there's a real closeness, I think, in this relationship. And that makes it all the harder as we get, you know, to the, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Hmm. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Yeah, so all of a sudden things turn. Um, they take a really difficult turn, right? Uh, he ties him up, and, you know, puts him on the altar, takes out a knife to slay his son. And so Adam Lee's test, you know, in, in his formulation of it, he asks what kind of God would require this. And, um, and then he asks what kind of a man, what kind of a person would carry out this requirement. Um, and so, you know, I, the, this, you have an answer to the question. I have an answer to the question. Adam Lee asks, God. yeah, Adam Lee asks, what kind of God would do this? And your answer is the only kind, the only kind, right? Yeah. <laughs> what is, yeah. what is, what a provocative answer. Yeah. Uh, the only kind of God, if right. there is a God, he would, he must be the kind of God who can command you to kill your child. Right. Yeah. So as, as we confront the concept of God, what is a God? You know, I, I, uh, we were doing some evangelism in a park and ran into a, a young man. He was a high schooler who he said he was, he was a worshiper of the Norse gods, you know, and that, um, his particular patron deity was Thor, and he was in some sort of a conflict with Loki and all this. And I'm, and I'm just thinking, dude, let's take, you know, you're taking the live action role playing a little too far. Um, and, and I asked the guy, is like, what makes a god a god? You know, um, is it because he's been around longer? Um, or is it because he's stronger? Um, and by that estimation, then. I'm a God to a toddler. Mm-hmm. Um, so does that make me a God? Do I, should I expect worship from, you know, preschoolers out there? And, um, or what, you know, what makes a God a God? If, if I say, yes, I, I am a God to the three-year-old and the daycare. And um, so I, I expect them to build me an altar and to bring me, gifts every day and stuff like that, or, or I shall become angry and then I shall, you know, unleash my wrath upon them. Um, and does that seem appropriate? No. Well, why is it? Why isn't it appropriate? Well, because I am, I am penultimate that the difference between me and a three-year-old is a quantitative one there. I'm bigger 
mm-hmm. longer, smarter, mm-hmm. you know, those Older. ER yeah. kind of things, right? And, and so if we project that and we say, well, if there's something such as a Thor in the world, then he is to me what I am to the three-year-old. Mm-hmm. He's not the ground of my existence. He is not the um, entirely other, that there's only a quantitative difference. And the difference between humans and any of the pagan gods that we might conceive is a quantitative one. You know, they all had parents. They all um, developed. They all have a certain strengths and weaknesses morally, personally. Every god that any human has ever conceived of has been quantitatively different from humankind. Okay. I would contend that that being quantitatively better does not entitle one to be worshipped. Okay, I, we could admire somebody or whatever. So mm-hmm. somebody's really big and strong. Mm-hmm. We say that's great, you know, but it doesn't. But the but this relationship that we have or that we presume with a deity that is one of worship now. If somebody's bigger, stronger, whatever, let's say that, you know, they're a warlord in a um, country that is run by a military junta or something, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, this person has the power to just extinguish you without any sort of um, consequence. Now, you might have to bring some sort of tribute. And that is largely what the the deity-worshipper relationship has been in pagan relationships. Mm -hmm. It's appeasement. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, because they're they can do bad things to you, and there's nothing you can do about it, and you better get on their good side and all that. Um, that does not meet scratch when it comes to the biblical presentation of God. Okay, that there's something about God's nature that his the gravity of his presence is such. Notice that in this story, that there's there's no threat. Mm-hmm. God doesn't. You know, and there's no there's no enticement, there's no reward. Right. You know, just and, do this. Right, and it was presented. I I was watching. Uh, there was a hospital show, New Amsterdam, and there's this um, Jewish character on there, and and he he tells this story, and he says, you know, Abraham was offered, you know, was given the offer of of this great blessing inheritance if he would kill his son. That is not how it's presented here. He's already given that. Mm-hmm. Right, and Abraham was the was the um, the means of the fulfillment. I mean, I'm sorry, Isaac was the means of the fulfillment right. of that promise God sure. had made to Abraham. So, right. what's going on here? Right, this is the child of promise. Right, yeah, he's yeah. the one that, who's going to form the nation. Yeah, that I've been promised. So, this isn't a quid pro quo that Abraham is moving in self interest that he wants this transcendent experience, and so he's willing to execute his child to pay this this painful price in order to have uh, immortality in terms of a legacy, but that his legacy is staring him in the face and he's having to destroy it Mm -hmm. for nothing. You know, there again, there's no warning and there's no promise of reward. Mm -hmm. There is only the voice that says do. Mm -hmm. And Abraham responds only to that. Not to uh, what to be, what's to be gained, or what's to be feared, but entirely to the very presence of this being, and and that's I think that's what we have to get. That 
if we don't understand that that God is qualitatively different from us, then we will, yes, of course, we will look back on the Old Testament and we will judge him, we will critique him, and we will reject him because we think he's quantitatively different because, you know, he's a bully. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's, um, maybe he's distant. And all of that makes him um, unfeeling and demanding and petty and all of these things. Because we know in human circles, power corrupts. And something with ultimate power is going to be ultimately corrupt. Uh, maybe that's what we are concerned with and what we fear. But what we miss is that God, by his very presence, his nature, his essence, is transcendent in a way that there is a gravity to his very nature that calls forth worship apart from anything he might, any sort of consequence, any sort of reward or enticement. And that's what we need to get. And that that response of he is ultimate, that he uh, supersedes every other consideration, that the Bible calls that fear. Now, it's not fear in that we've been threatened. Mm-hmm. Okay, it is. You're this, talking about the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, because that's the really the question as we get to the rest of of this story. That what is he testing for, right? So if the we're story testing, says this is a test, God tested Abraham, right? And so now we're about to find out what he's testing for. Okay, so you know if I if I give you a test, a math test, I'm testing for math proficiency, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If I give you a driver's test, I'm testing for driving competency. What is God testing for here? Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes we say, oh, it's a test. God's giving me a test. He's like, what's he testing for? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, Tests aren't just some random uh, thing, but generally they have um, a result that they're looking for. And so as we read on, go ahead. and. But the angel of the Lord, and this is all caps Lord, and we'll talk about that. Yeah. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Yeah, good, good stuff. So there's there's a, a new character that, that comes in, right? The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Yeah, and you'd mentioned that it's in all caps. And it, so if you look in your Bible, the word Lord is in all caps. You might miss that. Um, and there's a reason for that is because when it's in all caps, it stands for another word. The word it's actually not the word Lord in Hebrew would be Adonai. So in Lord, the, yeah. So if if Lord is written in uh, just a just a capital L and otherwise lowercase, then that's Adonai. Mm-hmm. But when it's in all caps, it's representing Yahweh. Yahweh, yeah. And so because the Jews were careful not to misuse that name, um, they didn't pronounce it at all, uh, so they used the word Lord instead. So they would they would say Adonai anytime that they saw the tetragrammaton, um, the Yod Hey Vah Hey in Hebrew, the four letter uh, name of God. And so this name of God was too holy even to be uttered by the um, by the Hebrews, and so we've retained that in our English Bibles. Um, most English translations will just replace that the name Yahweh with Lord. Um, and so uh, for whatever reason, that's been retained. Uh, but a lot of times in our world, our society, we think God is God's name. And um, we don't realize that he had a name. He has a proper name, right? 
uh, as, he, as he tells Moses in Exodus 3, and it seems to be that he's known by, um, by Abraham. And um, so what we get here is this angel of Yahweh. And the word angel here, I, I think that we, we make a mistake when we understand the word angel to mean a, an order of being. Um, an angel is just a job description. And so this it, is it means messenger. messenger, right? So this is the messenger of Yahweh. Um, but he, he does some weird stuff. And I've, I've noticed this in scripture. Maybe you have too, that he is the messenger of Yahweh, but he doesn't talk like a messenger. He talks like Yahweh himself. And how is that the case? You have not withheld from me, your yeah. son. Yeah. And because you've done this, he goes on and he, you know, he, he makes these promises and, and that the covenant, you know, he seems to be the one who's made the covenant with Abraham. And, and so, um, he's not just, he doesn't begin. There's not this preamble like thus says the Lord, at least not in most cases. Sometimes he does, but most of the time he just speaks with the voice, the authority of God as though he is God. He's, 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 so, he's, so he's introduced as the messenger of God, but then he speaks as God. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and at the same time, he speaks as another person in that he says, now I know that you fear God. So he speaks mm -hmm. of God in, in the third person. So, and, and he's the one, it seems, who's orchestrated this test and uh, to whom this offering was being made. As he says, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son. Wait, <laughs> you know, and, and so here we, we have another person. And yet that person is the one who is receiving the sacrifice. Um, and that ought to give us pause. That ought to tell us that um, monotheism in the Jewish faith originally was not one person. One being, yes, but one person, no. And this angel of Yahweh, this isn't just an incidental occurrence that he shows up, you know, to Moses. I mean, in Exodus 3, in the burning bush, he's there and he does the same stuff, man. He accepts worship. He speaks with God's voice. Um, he seems to be God himself, and yet you can't be your own messenger. And so he is another person. He is at the person of God who seems to interact most directly with God's creation. Who could it be, right? Uh, if you, um, and and yet we'd mentioned that hey, this was that God was testing for something, right? What was mm -hmm. He testing for? Now I know that you fear God. Yeah. And so that's this idea of of fear. It has to do with this this reverent response to God's nature, right? Mm -hmm. To to what he is. Right, right. The, the distinction you're making is that God's nature is what he is mm -hmm. and God's character is who he is. Right. And and that's what we miss, you know, I, when we think of God, we anthropomorphize God to the point that he's just a big guy with a beard um, or a regular sized guy who just got all kinds of power. Um, we miss what what's being presented to us that this is something that is wholly other that his very immediate presence would just vaporize us according to uh exodus 33 you know uh, that god has to find ways there 
you know, he has to represent himself in ways to us that we can possibly encounter and even and even come in contact with. Otherwise, just zap, you know, we're just toast. Not just we have to understand that this is something qualitatively other than anything else that has ever been or will ever be in the universe, that he is unique entirely qualitatively, that there is no um, matter of degrees between him and everything else in the universe, Mm -hmm. that there is an infinite gulf between him and the most powerful being in the universe, the second most powerful being in the universe, that there's an infinite gulf um, that they have really nothing in common in terms of their nature by, by virtue of the fact that anything had a beginning, then there is some mm-hmm. qualitative difference. Mm-hmm. And the failure to appreciate that is, I think, the foundational sin of humankind. Everything else is a symptom. So not fearing God, in other words, right. is the, foundation, the foundational sin Right, not ascribing to him his his nature, not accounting him, and and so this call to give up the that which is most precious um, is a call to fear God, is a call to allow God to be the primary concern, uh, the ultimate concern in our life, mm-hmm. um, in our decision making. That there is no need. It, that it is important not only that God offered no reason, no enticement, no threat um, in the affirmation of God's nature, but it is equally important that Abraham asks for no um, explanation, then he offers no hesitation because it is a reaction and a right and proper reaction to the concept of God. The very you know, ideal. What is God? What is a God? And one way of reading the book of Genesis is seeing Abraham's faith develop to this point. Right. Where he's, where he's finally prepared to do this. Right. Yeah. And as we said last time, it was the, it was really articulated as, is anything too hard for God? And, and Abraham throughout his life has, has had, has been shaky on the answer to that question. Um, and it's because he, you know, he's trained in pagan theology, mm-hmm. where gods are quantitatively different. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's now encountering something else, something other. And it's taken him, what, 35 years or something, you know, 40 years mm-hmm. to finally learn the lesson that he began learning at, say, 75. Okay, so he's quite old, and maybe he, he lived so long because he was so thick-headed. So if you want to live a long time, you know, be real slow to learn. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, and so he's, he's taken a long time to learn the answer to that question. But he finally knows the answer to that question. With the birth of Isaac from Sarah, he's, I think he's finally seen that there is nothing too hard for the Lord. And so, um, uh, I don't know, for me, I, if I can't draw a line of provenance between what I'm asking God to do and what might happen, it's hard for me to ask it, you know. So if you, the idea that God could raise someone from the dead. Okay. It's hard for you to ask for things that seem to you like this is clearly not going to happen. Right. That, that's right. This is materially impossible. Uh-huh. So why would you ask for it? Uh-huh. Right. And so we look back on the miracle of Christ rising from the dead and we can say scientifically that's impossible mm-hmm. or virgin birth or any of that. Scientifically not possible. So we're stuck in this idea that God is quantitatively different 
You know, he's, he has more scientific knowledge, but he still has to obey the laws of science. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. You know, he can just sing, you know, he can do things that completely defy that. If we don't get that that's who he is, we, we're already a pagan. We, we've got to get that he is qualitatively other and that by virtue of his very nature, he can require anything and everything. Otherwise, there, he's not a god. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, he's an alien. Okay, or he's just a big bully, or whatever you want to call it. But there's this this dignity that is owed to him, that is wrapped up in his very being, and that when we fail to acknowledge that, we have uh, insulted him and we have defrauded him, and that is the fountainhead of all sin. The rest of it is just symptoms, and and that's what we have to get. And that's why this is lesson one. Fear God. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that liberal theology throws the possibility of fearing God out the window and that um, humanism, atheism, it suggests that there is no God to fear or that fearing God is an inappropriate um human experience, uh, which really just leaves us as God, and that doesn't go well. Um, so it's lesson one. It's critically important, and it's and it's so important that it required an offering. Uh, and we miss that, too. I, I think when we say worship, what we think of is singing. When others heard worship, what they meant was bring a sacrifice, you know, bring something valuable, important, and um, and you know, a thing's worth what you'll pay for it. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to assign value to a God through an offering, what is God worth? Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, it, everything, mm-hmm. right? Isaac is everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the offering of Isaac is to ascribe to God his proper worth, that to bring him this fear that is appropriate to him. And it can't be just a you know, Abraham would do this. You know, God doesn't just show up and say, hey, Abraham, you and I have been hanging out a long time, and I was going to ask you to offer Isaac, but that seemed really mean. And so I I know what you would do. I know who you are, and so I'm not going to require this. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, the affirmation of God's holiness, it requires the sacrifice be made. Notice that the sacrifice isn't called off. You know, it is, but there is a substitute that's brought in, mm-hmm. you know. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Yep. So a sacrifice has to be made. A substitute is brought in. um, And we will talk more about that uh, and whether that was valuable. Uh, We only have a bit more, but I want us to notice that there's a a change in the name. So um, in 11 and 12, we have Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, and he refers to God in third person. Now I know you fear God, right? And then he speaks as though he is the God that is feared, as he says, you have not withheld from me 
your son, your only son. This is a pivot in the story. Um, prior to this, the only reference to the divine being is is the word Elohim. God. Right. So this was a generic term that was even used by other Semitic peoples to speak of the ultimate being, Elohim. Uh, you know, we run into Melchizedek, who is a priest of Elohim, Most High. Okay, so Melchizedek doesn't seem to know the name Yahweh, but he understands that there is a supreme being, and he is a priest of that supreme being in Genesis 14. So the idea that, you know, Elohim is what we worship. Yahweh is who we worship. Now, the proper name for God only comes in in verse 11 as who God is reflects on what God is, right? Yahweh speaking of Elohim and saying to Abraham, you have responded appropriately to Elohim, right? Yahweh making that observation. Now, what I want to notice is, is that from verse 13 or from yeah from verse 13 on the word elohim drops out of the narrative mm-hmm. where yahweh was missing in the first 10 verses mm-hmm. um only and god is only referred to as elohim four times in the first 10 verses in the first 10 verses then the name yahweh comes up in verse 11 Yahweh speaks of Elohim in verse 12, and then in verse uh, 14 and on, 13 on, then the only word used to refer to the divine being now is Yahweh. Hmm. Um, And so, and there's a change in tone, whereas Elohim appears and says, sacrifice your son, Mm -hmm. and God refers to, I mean, Abraham refers to God as Elohim solely, the narrator refers to God as Elohim solely in verses 1 through 10. In verses uh, in the rest of the narrative through verse 18, it is only Yahweh, no Elohim. Hmm. And you see a change in the demeanor, right? Um, that there is this reappearance to bring this blessing and this promise that, um, and have we read this? We did. Yeah, we yeah, yeah okay. we read this. I swear yeah. by myself. Yeah, because you have done this. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and he's making this promise. He's going to receive all of these things. Right again, this wasn't um, this these promises had already been made, but this is a an affirmation, a, a ratification of this of this covenant. It's not a quid pro quo, but it is this kind of affirmation that. Abraham is worthy because he's finally acknowledged and he recognizes the the nature of God. Abraham's worthy to be the father of the multitude, the father of the faith. Yes. He's worthy to be the one uh, that we refer to when we say the faith of Abraham. Right. And Christians are people who have the faith of Abraham. Right. Yeah. And so there's this, this juxtaposition that we have to get between the nature of God as Elohim and the personality of God as Yahweh, okay? And Elohim must be worthy of the ultimate sacrifice. We cannot conceive of God. We can't know God if we don't know what he is and we can't respond to what he is. Um, And we don't have practical, historical um, assignment of his value. 
okay? That it can't just be a, hey, I know you would. The, the, the sacrifice has to be made, mm-hmm. okay? That that establishes what God is in our history, in our experience, what he is is dependent on this ultimate sacrifice. Um, who he is could never accept such a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's loving, because he's benevolent, because he has all these attributes, who he is would never accept such a thing. And so Abraham's uh, convenient lie God will provide for himself a lamb Mm -hmm. becomes the only possible explanation because the sacrifice has to be made for Elohim, Mm -hmm. so for us to know Elohim. Mm -hmm. But if it is required of us, then we can't know Yahweh. Mm -hmm. Because Yahweh would never accept such a sacrifice. Right, and so... so there's And the convenient lie is God himself will provide. Right. Right, God will provide it ends up for being, himself. It ends up being the prophetic word. It is that reveals to us the the character of God. Right, exactly, exactly. Because this ram caught by its uh, horns in the thicket does not settle the question of what is Elohim worth. Mm-hmm, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. the, the sacrifice has to be made, but it's but this ram is a, is a placeholder. Mm-hmm. For this ultimate sacrifice, your son, your only son, the one you love. Mm-hmm. That is the only worthy sacrifice that satisfies the holiness of God. Mm-hmm. Okay? And yet Yahweh would never require it of us, mm-hmm. except that he has become, you know, one of us. That, And I would say that this messenger of Yahweh who is present... He is party to this covenant, as uh, Paul makes the point in Galatians, that the covenant with Abraham to bless all nations through him is made to him and to his offspring. And Paul makes a big point out of that being the singular collective noun, the seed, singular. And so God is making a covenant with Abraham, but with one individual who is of Abraham's line. And I would contend that that individual was present at that moment and that that covenant now made with that individual is waiting to be fulfilled as the son, the only son, comes and is offered, I think, to to satisfy the holiness of God. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, but provided by God because Yahweh is love. Thanks everyone for being with us. You may have questions about all of that. If you'd like to continue, email us. If you continue the discussion, email us at discussion at recoverfaith.org. Yep. Discussion at recoverfaith.org. Thanks. We'll see you next time.